Welcome to Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, editor Keith Fraze and I are talking Robert Brisson's Notes on the Cinematographer, his 1975 book, which if you aren't familiar with Robert Brisson's work or the book, it's a illuminating window to a very austere, dogmatic way of making films. It's up there with Sidney Lumet's uh, making movies, but it's as a great director writing about how he makes his films, but it's also completely different from that in that it's almost very philosophical and very austere and aesthetic. Key Phrase most recently edited Past Lives, directed by Celine Song, which was topping many mid-year polls as the most critically acclaimed film of the year. And so we end up talking a little bit about that too. But first up, what I've been watching recently, you know, Quentin Tarantino talking about retiring because directors go downhill, supposedly. He did a podcast in the New Bed podcast, the Pure Cinema New Bed podcast, and they all named their exceptions, their favorite last films of major directors. And I forget who picked this, but The Liberation of L.B. Jones, William Wyler's last film. I, it's it's interesting. It's kind of it's kind of got this. It's co-written by Sterling Siliphant, who won an Oscar for In the Heat of the Night and wrote some Sam Peckinpah movies. And it's kind of got a feel mixed between In the Heat of the Night and the squareness of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is, you know, got the uh, vibe of like old white people who are just like, slow down, progress. Let's just, let's just, let's just get our bearings together and then we'll fix American racism here just in a second. And it has that vibe to it too, but. It's interesting bringing up the Tarantino last director theory while talking about Robert Brisson in this book because this book is great, but it's also very dogmatic and very specific kind of notes to the director himself. So I think Tarantino's theory works well for him, and there's a lot of lot of examples, probably a majority of examples, but there's also a lot of exceptions, so it's not universal. As for media I watched this week, uh, in, or it, the strike is obviously still going on, and I just watched on Twitter or X or whatever the Tony Gilroy give his very impassioned speech. I, I urge you to check it out. He uh, made a swipe about. He never thought he'd see writers on top. Uh, right after mentioning, he also never thought he'd see New York dog owners clean up dog shit. But I don't know if I've ever really mentioned speak back to Tarantino. It always comes back to Tarantino. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this theory on why the strike. Happening now seems like just kind of a culmination of a lot of different separate threats. And Tarantino is the first person that said that, at least I heard say, that right now we're in one of our worst American decades up there with the 80s and the 50s. Now, the reason this is interesting is because what else was happening in the 80s and 50s, at least with the film industry? In both instances, they were being the theatrical model was being quasi-threatened by some new delivery system for movies, whether the 50s, it was te television really coming to pro into, into prominence. In the 80s, v uh, video, I mean, I, I want to say VHS, but I don't know, B beta didn't cause all this. And then streaming right now, even though it's been around for a few years. And I f the oddness of this is that you have your worst decades of American output with these threats, is it this? Is it just because the gatekeepers go to the bunker and only allow the, the theory on how to get out of this is to 
take no risks and make a lot of safe safe content because that short-sightedness seems to be exacerbate the issue more than anything else so it's almost like they have to get out of it to create the vital content that's going to get back to saving theatrical or making theatrical vital again all this to say is i'm still on the side of once the strike is over, I'm not saying it's a silver bullet, but there's something it's going to clear up a lot, it seems like. And also just the idea that streaming, there's just a lot of issues around the strike involving, they, they, they keep promising that the real revenue is going to come tomorrow. And I, it seems like everyone's tired of that explanation. So that's another reason why this is the, another element that's coming together for the strike that's either going to break streaming or put it as an alternate uh, alternate, alternate method. Tony Gilroy also had this really ob interesting observation that I think he cribbled, uh, cribbed from somebody else about part of the reason the AMPTP is doing so or uh, they can't get their shit together. They can't, the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild are pretty organized and the everyone else that's coming against them has 25 different revenue models and they're fighting with each other so how, they can't get their shit together too back to notes on the cinematographer i should make a distinction cinematographer isn't as isn't as everyone else uses the term cinematographer being the one who photographs a movie brisson's idea of a cinematographer is it's his name for an artist who is works in the in the medium of cinema so putting that distinction out there here is me and keith phrase talking brisson's 1975 short volume i kind of don't know if i should start out talking about this or not just because of the jinx effect but um uh, your wife posted on social media the other day one of those uh, gold derby style Oscar prognosticators of who's uh, in the derby to be nominated for stuff. And you were like third or fourth on the list for best editor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny you mentioned that because actually she and I got into a little bit of an argument about that because I was I, I, I had to qualify it. It was like, yes, yes, this is very cool. It's very nice to be recognized, but... Like there is a very infinitesimal chance that this, this actually happens, and she got mad at me for being a, pe a pessimist. <laughs> so, well, I, I didn't know if I brought it up. I was going to jinx anything about it too, because I mean, I'm sending you texts all the time, being like, "This is going to happen, Keith. I think this is going to happen." No, I appreciate it. I, I well, and what I ended up telling her was like, I just like the fact that my name is in the conversation is like reward enough for me. So I'm just excited about that. So I take that as the thing, not like, like I'm not believing that anything will come of this, but the fact that there's even an article written and my name is in the mix is just been pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, obviously I, cause I think what blew my mind was it was just like you were right next to or two away from Thelma Shoemaker. And I was like, yeah, well that made that's... my knees go weak. She is the, she yeah. is the ultimate best of all time. So, yeah. I was trying to remember, um, when our period of working together, how many we worked with one Oscar winner, but I think we worked with a ton of Oscar nominees or not ton, but like about at least two or three. I was thinking of uh, Sar and Billy for I think they got nominated for Thin Red Line. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, but um, oh, wait, I'm sure uh, Daniel must have been nominated or or, or he, I guess he didn't win um, for City of God, but which is uh, well, I don't even I don't even know if he would have been nominated for City of God. Oh, that's wild. That's the weird thing of like the Oscars don't 
when, when the technical awards they're not i don't I, I especially if you're in the conversation i don't want to say anything bad about the oscars or their process no, feel free to it's okay <laughs> but when it comes to the technical awards they don't it's I, I i don't know a nice way of saying this it's a bunch of actors uh doing the nomination for technical awards so like it's it's it generally has a tendency to be like um best picture nominees basically right well i always saw that um what's the adage like the 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 film that usually either gets nominated or wins for best editing is always the film that has the most editing so <laughs> it's uh, so that's why I was that's why I was telling my wife I was telling Ali that you know like uh don't um uh don't expect anything cuz obviously past lives is very reserved very minimalistic uh which is very apropos of our discussion with Robert about Versan today but uh uh it's you know it definitely doesn't have the most editing so very much on so i mean so specifically the book we're talking about is uh robert Persson's notes i always get this wrong on the cinematographer because i always want to say notes to the cinematographer because he has a different definition of what the term cinematographer is on our time working together i have a tendency to remember you being the there is one or two big advocates in the editing room for Brisson, but i remember you being one of the bigger ones if not the biggest one yeah, well, I um, so I, I was completely unfamiliar with Brisson until uh, I mean it was Terry, it was um, you know who who uh, really. I thought I, I I thought you I just I just assumed it was a college thing. You got to him in in uh, uh, UT. No, I I'd, I'd never heard of him. I never, never seen any of his films. It was all because of like Terry's like constant sort of like espousing of his principles and and such that got me interested in it. And I actually think. I can't, it's been a while, so I can't remember. But I think I actually read notes on the cinematographer before I even saw any of Brisson's films. And I was so just like interested in, I, this was like during a time in my life where I was like very fascinated with process and, and like, and filmmakers coming up with like dogma for themselves. And uh, I don't know, I, 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 so I became so uh, infatuated with the way he would talk to himself. Brisson would talk to himself in this book and his notes and his writings about his own process and like the and as he was discovering who he who he was as an artist and you know then then I kind of okay great now let me start watching this stuff I am naturally um, attuned to his sort of style because I'm a I am a minimalist at heart I mean I love films that are maximalist in style I'm a big fan of like George Miller and stuff like that where lots of stuff is happening but I don't know there is just a part of me that just really appreciates like the precision and uh and reservedness of some somebody like Brisson. Well, I think you're getting to a core of when I was, um, I I had always kind of picked parts of the book, but I I never actually finished reading the book all the way through until like yesterday. Even though it's a the the version I have is that really pint sized, really tiny one. And I used to have it in my knapsack with me all the time. Yeah, the one you're holding up right there too. With it looks like it's got a bunch of. Um, uh, dog-eared. Uh, uh, I, I, I came prepared for today, so I, I made some some notations. <laughs> I got I got three pages of notes, dude. Um, the it's because and I had seen two of his movies. I'd seen Diary of a, a Country Priest, and which our mutual friend AJ always used to make fun of me because I used to call it Diary of a County Priest because <laughs> I'd always get it confused. And uh, Al Hazard Balthazar. Mm-hmm. The I, I'd always heard good things about that, and. I don't rereading is I'm feeling like the dogma there's much more appeal in reading the dogma sometimes in the movies themselves for me I, you know I actually 100% agree with that I'm, I'm not like Brisson is not my favorite filmmaker I, I admire a lot of his stuff and there's like 
Well, admire is a good word. Yeah. Admire, like there's clearly there's a lot to admire about it, but the like the I I also started reading the chapter in uh, Paul Schrader's book mm. on uh where he has a, uh, on Brisson and he literally has a sentence and he says it it's it's a it's a clip part of a sentence where he's talking about the things about it, but Brisson despises what moviegoers like best. <laughs> That and he's saying it's a favorable thing. He was saying it's favorably. That's so funny. You know, I, I, I after I was, you know, I was, I, I reread through the book um, over the past uh, last night, and I um, immediately the thing that struck me as I started trying to do some research online, I was like, what? Who are the filmmakers? I, I know the filmmakers that Brisson has inspired, but I was like, what are the filmmakers that Brisson himself actually enjoyed? Because after a while, when you read through his book, you're like, wait, do, do you? Is there anybody that you like? Is there? It, it, he's sort of on his own, like sort of plateau, and like I don't know if anyone else is even approaching what he was trying. So I'm like, do you? Is are there any films that you admire that, that, that move you, Mr. Brisson? Well, because well, it, it it's like that thing where um you know Tarkovsky loved uh the Terminator. They always love this idea of these ascetic, uh mainly European oblique filmmakers like who could never love Hollywood cinema, and then they find this like outliers where like. Goldfinger was supposedly a movie Brisson thought it was amazing. Um, <laughs> now that's okay. Yeah, but you're trying to find like the silliest Hollywood big budget example of like, can this artistic director like the masses medium? You know, like examples like that. But what did you find? What did, no, what I did couldn't you... find anything. I couldn't find anything that like, uh, I mean, to be, I, to be fair, I didn't go too deep down the rabbit hole, but I couldn't find anything immediately accessible that was like, this is, these are the people who, it, there's like, there's tons of lists of filmmakers that are, that cite um, Brisson as a, um, right. uh, as an inspiration, even filmmakers who you would, as like, oh, I would never have guessed that Brisson was even in their, you know, filmic vernacular. But um, no one that I saw that he specifically, like that, that inspired him. Well, you know what? One of the things I noted, um, first off, I watched two movies in prep for this. I finally watched La Gente, mm -hmm. and which I actually quite, I liked. I thought I, I was fine with it. And I'll get to that later. And I have never seen Pickpocketed, mm. which for Schrader, if we're going to talk, Schrader's going to come up in this. It, it, Schrader, that is his Rosetta Stone. Right. He just like, he just, he's made like five movies where he says that is the chief, chief thing he's referencing. And going back through the book, you know, he like, uh, clearly just, just no technique, no intention. This big thing is just like, just like, just don't show up and just, and try to show less thing. The one instance and why I was kind of into Legend a little that he's all, he is, seems like he is okay with using technique is sound. And he has a lot of sound advice in, uh, in the book where he talks about, um, keeping it simple too, but he talks about making an artificial rhythm, the noises must become music is one quote he has on page 30. I mean, he, he talks intently about specifically everyday sounds rhythmically coming in. And I think Largent, when it, I'll get to that later, but um, I, that surprised me. That surprised me. Because, I, I mean, for someone that's trying to, like, disappear technique so much. Well, so now you're getting to, like, the the heart of what I... I, I what I like so much about Brisson and why it speaks so much to, uh, you know, so being a film editor, um, I think Brisson really, it's funny for a book that's called Notes on the Cinematographer, so much of it is about how the true art of filmmaking comes through in the editing and the, you know, um, in the piecing together of like, you know, he basically says that images 
or shots or whatever don't hold any inherent meaning. It's only in the meaning of, you know, in juxtaposition. And he, and he includes that with sound. So, so many times it's like, okay, image juxtaposed with sound, juxtaposed with silence is what's going to create the motif in the, in the meaning of the, of the film. And I also um, appreciate, he, he has a lot of um, mentions in the book about, again, this goes back to his minimalist uh, approach where if the sound, like, deciding on what is the key thing in, in, in any given moment in a film. Like, so if the image is overwhelming or, or complex, then the sound should be minimal, should be simple. Or if the sound is like the thing, then the image should be pulled back. So like never, if they, if they, everything's don't have them competing with one another. They should, yeah. everything should be in accordance with another. And this is all stuff that we think about in the editing room. And, um, I really appreciate that sort of like, very formal, very precise approach to how to create meaning and art in the edit- editing. The reason I, w- I was thinking about sound and why it's so important to him was per your point a second ago, um, the only piece, the, the artists he mentions most are people like, I know specifically Debussy and Vivaldi, and there's a lot of musical mentions. Everything else he sends to trash. Like he, um, he's, he's adapted a lot. He's, he's adapted mostly books before Pickpocket. And then I think none after Pickpocket. I mean, and, and besides well, Lancelot. Yeah, yeah. And, Lancelot. And then, I mean, obviously did Joan of Arc. Um, well, Largent, I thought Largent was from. You, a, you might, so I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. You're right. Largent, I think it's based on a, it's either Tolstoy or Dostoevsky short story or something like that. Yeah. But I mean, he talks or, well, Balthazar is, is supposedly right. uh, based on a lot of character, but he just trashes every other art. One of the things I appreciated, loved was, I mean, my first one I wrote down was uh, uh, the terrible habit of theater, uh, like, uh, which has been on my mind lately, but although we have different reasons for disliking theater and, and filmmaking, but I mean, he, he just keeps saying like every other art form is going to be when you bring it into film, it's going to be a lesser form of that art form coming into film unless film can do something intrinsically that only film can do. Right. And I think that's, again, this is where, this is the exact thing of like what me, had me fall in love with Persan before I had, I had even seen any of his films was, I mean, I was, I was young and I was kind of just learning like what the possibilities of like filmmaking could be and reading the book like reading somebody as they tried to wrestle what film as an art form was and could be. Right. And, um, I just really appreciated how Persan thought about, was thinking about it at the time, especially when film it had been around for a while, but it hadn't really like, like it was still so new and young, uh, especially compared to other art forms. And the fact that film, when filmmaking first began, people didn't really know what to do with it. And so, so many of the early directors came from theater, right? And so that's why you have so many early films that are pretty much just putting a camera and filming the stage proscenium. And because of that, and because of the early success of those films, there was a sort of feeling that film was just, that cinema was just filmed theater. And I appreciated Bresson saying, no, no, f- like filmmaking is its own art form. And if, if it only becomes like a film diversion of another art form, then it has no inherent power in and of itself. It's just a bastardization of that art form. And so what is it that makes filmmaking unique? Which again, I, I appreciate his sort of emphasis on the editing of it. Because of course, editing is the only, like, that, that's, that's only inherent to film. There's no other art form that has editing in that way. I guess when I was looking at the book, I kept thinking that he was um, not really talking about editing. I mean, he was because he would talk about, but he would always say like images 
beautiful images by themselves are nothing when unless you put it next to another one. Mm-hmm. But I guess just because back to your Oscar point about more editing is the good editing, he's doing less editing than anybody else. Let's back up real quick. Sure. Did you guys was did the Brisson come up much when you guys were working on Past Lives? Um, no. Or did because I mean I always think of this as fundamentally one of your philosophies. Whenever you because of the minimalist, it's, right. it's a way you always talk about your minimal the minimalism you want to put into. Just so I didn't know if that a vocabulary you had. I mean, I I'm sure I definitely I bring him up. I'm pretentious enough to bring him up at any chance <laughs> I can get, but uh, I don't know if uh, Celine, the director of Past Lives, I'm not sure how aware she was of Brisson's, uh like filmography, so I'm not sure how much we talked about it. We definitely so Past Lives we did like discuss minimalist filmmaking approaches, and that like the the ones that I keep thinking about are she like she had me watch a lot of Coriata films. We did an episode on Corriedo with one of our um, past coworkers, a uh, good friend, Mark Yoshikawa. Oh, that's awesome. He's, I, and I had never seen any Corriedo films before Celine shared them with me. And oh my God, I fell in love with it. I, I just think that his work is, again, it's so precise. Every single shot has meaning and every cut has meaning. And then we also focused on Yi Yi, the uh, Edward Yang film, which again okay. is similar in that sort of thing. Everything is sort of reserved and pulled back. And every, every time the camera cuts, there's a new idea and a new thought. So those were sort of the things that we were discussing in that sort of the edit- editorial approach. And I'm sure I brought up Rasan just to have something to talk about, but it was in that sort of like, it, it definitely, inf- that, that, that sort of minimalistic approach to filmmaking was discussed ad nauseum in the cutting room for past lives. Okay. Um, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I see it. It was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this, but also I just knowing you, I just seems like it's so fundamentally baked into it. So this book also is um, a sight and sound poll in 2011, put this as the number two film book of all time. Um, yeah. Number one was uh, David Thompson's bi- biographical dictionary of film. This is number two. Number three was uh, Andrew Sarris's American Cinema. Mm-hmm. Four, which I'm surprised is lower, was uh, Hitchcock Truffaut. Mm-hmm. And then number five was Andre Bazin's uh, What is Cinema? I mean, I I, I kind of want to dive into the book, too, just because I want to get to this. One of the first places I ever heard about Brisson was the Arthur Penn movie Night Moves. Have you ever seen it? Mm-hmm. Or have you heard about where I'm going with this? No. There's a, there's a line early on where... Um, uh, I forget Gene Hackman's character in it, but someone asked if he wants to go see the Robert Brisson movie. And he says uh, something along the lines of, no, I'd rather watch paint dry. (laughs) And this book is so, but this book is so appealing. Like it's like, I don't know if it's like, do you think it's a young filmmaker thing that this is appealing to, or like, like someone that can, can really follow under a sway of a dogma, I think, especially an absolutist dogma too. Right. I mean, I would think that I'm sure I mean, I can't see this film having much appeal to anybody who's not trying to be a filmmaker. Because I think there's something to like the sort of, you know, fortune cookie wisdom, like the way like they're all sort of laid out. But then also, again, yeah, just like about process and about I, I, what's I, what's so intoxicating about it for me is this sort of uh, is is watching someone try to def- like figure out who they are as an artist, right, and define their process. And I think okay. that's I think that's the most useful thing. Even if your process is completely different than Prasans, there's something about watching him like just jot down his thoughts that I think can help inform 
young filmmakers as they're all as they're also trying to figure out because you know, that's the whole thing it's just like making sure that you as an artist are are thinking about what like what like what's the what is it that you want to convey not just in this singular film but in you know in your approach to filmmaking in general how can you push the art form forward how can you use the art form for your own to say what you want to say as long as you're thinking about all those things then that's the job of a young of a young up and coming filmmaker right so I think that's I don't know to me that's that's what I think is so mesmerizing about the book the other appeal I think talking to you about this is like this is I, I mean I, I, there are times minimalism is very appealing to me but that's not naturally where I go <laughs> and uh, so working with the, I always remember Brisson it was like Brisson and opera were the poles we'd go through one day we're like well, this needs to be more Brissonian and then the next day it was like this needs to be more operatic meaning a way of saying let's do more here and I our time together especially i've i think the appeal is we work in a with editing a thing that's has a tendency sometimes to need to be invisible and the romanticism reading through this book is you would see doing invisible techniques work on people i think brisson's movies when they work on people like it it, it just you'd see that audience reaction where someone was moved and they just don't know why they're moved and you having worked on that process for two years and seeing what we put into it that looks invisible, we had a good idea of like why you're moved by it. I mean, that gets to the heart of what Brisson's going for is like this sort of not trying to make movies that are impressive in any sort of technical sense or showy, but like rather sort of just kind of like, yeah, it, yeah, like you say, like it, it, it affects you in a way that you're not, you can't put your finger on. That, that That's getting at the ineffable quality of, of the miracle of what film can do. And you're like, you're like, oh my God, why am I so moved by this? I don't understand this rush of emotion. I love that he he uses phrases a lot, uh, not beautiful images, but necessary images. Right. Well, that also gets to, I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep bringing it back to editing, but that's that that's just like a defining thing to me. Like, I just, I love it when I feel like every, I mean, this, and this must go back to my film school days, like where every edit is like purposeful, right? Like you don't just cut just to, just to cut, right? You're cutting because like uh, an edit is a, is meaning like, if, if you're not going to add to the meaning of what was before, then just let the shot run. But you're cutting for a specific meaning. You're not just cutting just for coverage or, I mean, every look, everything you work on is going to, you know, you're cutting for lots of reasons. You're doing you're cutting for rhythm. You're cutting right. for, you know, because someone messed up a line or whatever it is. But at its purest form, you want to cut just when it's like, ah, this is, I'm changing the meaning at this point. And so that's what I, yeah, I, I take from the, you know, when he says, these are all necessary images, necessary ideas juxtaposed with one another. Do you want to go into the book now? Do you, I mean, you you have uh, your uh, uh, um, pages set up. I have my I three pages of uh, <laughs> quotes here. Uh, you want to? You just want to do a back and forth of favorite quotes or what? Uh, sure. I mean, I I my, my notations are kind of unwieldy, and I just I'm not sure how I'll find things. I'll probably just remember stuff, and I'll probably just I'll do my best to summarize my thoughts and try okay. not to bastardize the quotes too much. All right, I'll start. Uh, cinematography is writing with images and movement and with sounds. Um, I, I pointed out there was no mention of editing there, but I think you're pointing out that the clearly editing's baked in. I literally used that phrase like uh, two weeks ago and kind of got mocked for pretentiousness because of it. That's, I mean, well, that's, <laughs> I, that is the thing with Rasan is he does write. It is, you know, reading it through this time, I definitely had a feeling of like, I am so, um, like, I, I, 
uh, the, the book has had a profound effect on me when I was younger. It still has a profound effect on me, but I was like, I'm not sure I'd want to go out to dinner with Brisson. I'm not sure. I'd, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to sit with him. Uh, I mean, I know he passed away a long time ago, but I'm not sure I'd like, I'd want to like, uh, I could handle this level of intellectualism for too long. I read um, uh, a, a recap of the book by former past guest, Glenn Kenny, And uh, he po- pointed out that it was, um, are you, fam- I'm not familiar with this Flannery O'Connor's book of prayers. He compared mm. it to that for, uh, for film. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's like, it's like nuggets. That's the thing. That's the thing that's interesting about this book that also can tire you out every while. It's like, it's usually not, not there. None of these are more longer than two lines. They do eventually um, get longer than two lines, but not many of them. And it was funny because as I got to the end of the book, I, I had like about 10, 20 pages left and realized all of these notes were from like 1950 to 1959. And then the last 10 pages are after. Right. And I, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't realize that until reading through it for this. I'd forgotten that, that, that and that's a very specific time in his filmography. Because I think that's like the, around the time of like of Pickpocket, of Balthazar, yeah. Of a man escaped, and so I wonder what his if his approach changed. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of hard because like Largent is his last film, and that's probably the most Personian of all the films. So uh, Schrader talked about, and I think a few other people picked up on this after um, uh, Man Escaped or Pickpocket. Man, they called it his prison cycle, and so mm-hmm. he was consciously there for Balthazar wanting to change. I not do another movie, because it was always. This, form of uh, you know the world is a prison people going to into prison or out of prison yeah. right yeah i i mean i know that his his like sort of approach and like i, I feel like his filmography just gets more and more bleak and or his world outlook gets bleaker and bleaker as the films kind of keep progressing i which i i I've, I've always read as sort of like his um his feeling that like what modernity was doing to the modern world and uh and I, I think that's why his outlook kind of got got darker. But it's funny because I always one of the first films I ever saw of his was A Man Escaped, and so for some reason I always have it back in my head as like, oh, Brisson's a, a very hopeful filmmaker. <laughs> you know, I know he's a very religious filmmaker, has or has religious iconography. But I was like, oh yeah, he's kind of a hopeful filmmaker because the end of that, and also the end of Die Every Country Priest, which might have been like the second Brisson film I ever saw. I mean, the priest dies at the end, but it has an incredibly hopeful last line of like, you know. You know, what, grace. Yeah, it's like, what does it matter? All is grace. It's such a beautiful last sentiment. So I'm like, oh, yes, yeah, a hopeful. And then you watch a movie like Largent, and you're like, oh, dear God, this is the bleakest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you, th- is that a lessening of uh, religious subtext or uh, subject in the movie that lost him his literal faith and humanity? Like, I, I don't know. I, I, there, there were just you know there factors of like I, 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 he was always critically a popular filmmaker, but he was ne- he never had a movie catch on uh, from a like like a a movie that made money or anything like that. I mean, you can understand why it's like his, yeah his, his his stuff is so it almost has I mean and you, when you read the book it almost has a, a layer of contempt for the audience. Like I think he even says in some of his writings like don't don't give the audience what they want. Like, you know, better speaking to himself. Like, I, like I know better. I'm going to give you what you, like you need as, I as the artist. I think I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Which, and I think the way he phrased it made sense where it was just like, no, no, I remember really liking what he said. Cause he's, he pointed out the audience doesn't know what it wants. I mean, yeah. And I think that that, that is true. 
Um, and look, I'm not going to fault a filmmaker for arrogance and ego. I think there's required. There's like a certain degree of ego that's required to to make a film. But I just remember like there is that sort of feeling like I'm I'm going forward with like I, I'm I am trying to approach truth, and I do I'm not here to entertain. Which again, that's fine. He's he wants to be an artist in filmmaking. <laughs> I'm not here to entertain. I am here to like, I'm I'm trying to accomplish something. And whoever wants to go along with me on this, great. It just so happens that you know you're not gonna you're gonna have very few people who can who follow you on that path. I had my point earlier about the uh, the theater and hate disliking theater. I, I think we should start talking about the models because right. when I, my thing with the, the theater is like so much of filmmaking right now that bugs the shit out of me is just pointing a camera at people talking and people doing radio. And it mm-hmm. just feels Brisson seems I think you were always really attuned to this just because like you also had some what some of the best sensitivity towards what is a real performance and what is a fake performance. Um, Brisson just wanted a real sense of like, I don't want someone trying to push emotions. I want someone to have the emotions on screen or just be, be like, we, we, let's talk about exactly what he meant by models as his actors. Cause he uses the term models a lot. Right. And so that comes from him, you know, his definition of an actor is someone who is like, it well is is acting is performing is emoting like like doing an interpretation of an emotion right, which is not to, which is to him is not truth and never and can never be truth, and so he wanted to get models who are I mean especially towards the latter part of his career are just are non actors put into these roles who have a particular quality to their look or to their face or to their eyes, and he would have them perform whatever action they were going to do in that scene, he would have them perform it over and over and over again. Cause his belief, what he would say is that in, in life, our, our motions, our actions are not, we don't think about them. We just do it. They're automatic. Right. And so when an actor is performing something, they are, they're, they're doing everything with too much intentionality. They are thinking about what they're doing. They're before they're, they're perfor- like, I'm going to go to the desk and I'm gonna pick up my coffee cup and drink a cup of coffee. They're thinking about all those things. So he would have them perform these actions over and over and over again until the action, until everything became automatic and you're not thinking about anything. You're just doing it. It's it's like a, it's just a, it's part of what you're, it's, 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 it's an automatic process at this point. And that way it would become closer to, to reality, to truth. He was just so, he was just, it was so, couldn't stand any hint of performing because he would, you know, his whole thing about the theater and why he, because it's funny, he, in all of his writings, it wasn't that he had a disdain for the theater. He seemed to actually love the theater, but he said the reason why the theater is powerful is because there's an immediacy to it. You're in the room with the actors. You're fu- if and if you're doing it on film, you're photographing theater. Right. So the the thing that stood out to me, I can't remember which one of his pieces of wisdom in the book this comes from, but he says the difference between theater and what he calls film theater is the same as like if you're in front of a a painting by Renoir or or Degas or Monet or whatever, like there's a power to that painting. But if you're looking at a photograph of that painting, there's not nearly the same power because you're not in the room with it. I remember that one, yeah. So because of that, he was like, film can't just be filmed theater. It has to be something else. 
I was also really taken by him talking about uh, surfaces. And because uh, I think um, Susan T Sontag wrote a lot about Brisson on top of uh, Schrader. I read a little what she did. And they talked about that he was obsessed with surfaces. And he has an amazing one later in the book where he says something like, just remember everything you're making is being put on top of a white sheet hanging somewhere. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, I remember he says something about that in the book about that. Well, I don't know. I'm not really sure where to go with that. Well, what, what are you saying? Like, it, like it, do you know what that, like, what, where that led his thinking? Because he's like, okay, everything's being put on a white sheet. Everything's being, like, projected. What is that? How does that affect his? Uh... Maybe it's just about simplicity. Maybe it is more of the uh, minimalism of it. Um, just because, you know, he's, he's always about. The, re the reason I thought you did this, um, gone to Brisson at UT, was one of my former bosses, Karim Sanga, on a mo the mo movie we did together, First Girl I Loved, he talked a lot about, he used over and over, one of Brisson's quote was, uh, build your film on, well, I, I got it wrong over the years, it was, um, it's at the very end of the book, in page 136, build your film on white, on silence, on in stillness. And I just assume you guys came to Brisson at UT at some point. No, it's funny. I, Karim and I never spoke about Brisson. Um, just because when we knew each other, I didn't know anything about it. But yeah, I, I, I less I approach a quote like that less from the aspect of the surfaces and that whole thing, and more from I know Brisson's belief in silence, and because he didn't like to use music in his films in any sort of like overlay sort of way the main elements that he was messing with were image sound. And then he would say silence, like silence is, is as equal, equally important of a element as anything else. Right. So I just looked at that. Like to me, that quote says that that's one of his building blocks is And that's really important for all of us to remember is, you know, cause modern day film has employs silence so rarely. Well, you know, uh, I've, I, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name, but he was, uh, He's one of the great modern uh, blockbuster uh, uh, sound designers. Um, he did um, uh, he did Jurassic Park, and but he was talking about um, the sequence in Mission Impossible where um, the computer room where they get the list out of the computer room, oh, yeah. and you know that's a twelve or eight minute sequence or however long it is that in theory is all about silence. And he talked about how like the trick on silence, at least in his ter in term, and getting an audience to feel like silence was you had to have a sound that feels like what an empty room feels like. So it would be the hum of a computer or it would be um, a ceiling fan going somewhere or up the top corner. But Brisson, when I think of silence, I think of him cutting everything out. Like I think of him just just not making, not, not putting something into the soundtrack or something onto the film, an image onto film. Right. And I think that that's, I mean, that gets at a little... It, it, you know, you have to think a little bit about how like films were projected back then. Like in no matter if you're, you're clearly he's not thinking about people watching these things at home. He's thinking about them watching in a theater where you're going to have a certain amount of sounds anyway. You're going to have the, the roar of the projector is always going to be going. You're going to be having the sounds of all the people and whatnot. I, so I do think like silence is thought about was thought about differently back then than it is today, where there always needs to be something in there to kind of like because of, with a digital projection, you don't have any sort of sound. So there's like there's just nothing. Isn't there a gag in E2 Mama Tambion when um, the narration comes up that they have a projector sound in the back of it? Because it's si it silences the soundtrack a little, but I think like there's a proje projector hum underneath it. Oh. Sorry, I didn't mean to inter interrupt. No, that's point, interesting. So. I don't. I mean, it's been years since I've seen that movie. I don't remember it. 
But I just know that there is something that is so effective about either, okay, when silence happens in a movie, it's like usually almost like, like your heart almost stops because like it feels like something's wrong and like because you're not used to it. And I think it's employed properly is very effective. But also on top of that, when everything goes silent and there's like a very singular sound, my mind right now is going to, because I saw it fairly recently, is Oppenheimer when the bomb goes off and everything goes silent and all you're hearing is this breathing. I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful sound choice. Yeah. Because... Again, I mean, this—that's a perfectly—that's a perfect like Bersonian principle. The image is very big, very grandiose. You're watching explosion, like in, like making the sound very simple, very reserved, and pulled back. And that juxtaposition is incredibly artful, and it it and it, and it creates meaning in a way that otherwise, you know, that wouldn't it wouldn't be nearly as powerful if you're hearing the blast as you're seeing it as well. We've had these conversations about uh, Alex Garland's movies between the two of us. And I remember when I saw Annihilation the first time and I was so into it and I was waiting for this um, maximalist end, uh, but a visually maximalist end, um, the soundtrack got silent and the soundtrack stayed silent for a long time. And the audience was pretty captivated as far as I could tell, but it just went on a beat too long. And then people started to wrestle. And finally someone got up and realized the sound had just cut out on the projector. It wasn't supposed to be that way. I was wondering, because I'm like, I don't remember there being that much silence in that. Maybe, I, yeah. like, no, it's um, <laughs> so interesting. It's, it's like, oh, this is a very bold choice. But it goes to your point, or, or Brisson's point, one or the other. You, you can overwhelm someone with visual, you can overwhelm someone with sound, but you can't have them fighting each other. Yeah. And again, I think what's so useful to, to filmmakers today is, is, Again, you don't have to follow Bersonian principles to the to the T, but like I just think it's nice. What's useful is being that thoughtful about it, right? Thinking about your image and thinking about your sound as two separate elements running in parallel with one another, and how you can juxtapose them in a way to create new meanings that otherwise wouldn't be there. So you're not just. I mean, yes, of course, sound can sometimes just be there to fill the space and fill the void, so that the image like lives in a in reality. But then. Also be aware that it can be used and employed in a way that 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 bounces off the image and creates new meaning. That's where I think that that's what I think is the most useful takeaway from from you know Brisson's principles in that regard. But we'll get to it later. But he was but he was so ascetic and just kind of minimalist about everything. Like um, uh, Schrader had a really good description of all of his shots. The majority of his shots were. Um, chest level of a standing man and they were uh uh almost all mediums like he just never does singles doesn't employ close-ups like just even his visual style uh we'll get also into i I find the quote later but he uh he was i don't know if he was the first one to do this he couldn't have been but like a lot of filmmakers i know richard linklater followed this for a while and david cronenberg followed this for a while brisson used the same lens on every shot mm-hmm. or I assume and he has one in here it said changing lenses is like changing eyeglasses yep no that one stood out to me on this read too I um because it kind of yeah just it, it, it's not attached to anything else it's just kind of this little nugget of, of a thought that's just kind of thrown out there in the book well, but he but he says it's because he, a lot of his visual ideas he wants because he wants it to seem like it's coming from a human being's eye when as a human being sees and then he wants consistency in that yeah do you know what he used like i mean we always say that like a 50 millimeter is the closest approximation to a human eye so do we know if like he used 50 millimeter lenses or if it was 
I mean, it looked a it looked a little wider than that, but I mean, because he's also big into um, place. He he when he went and used clo uh, close ups, he still wanted to keep it wide enough so you had people in the background, so you could see people in locations and know where they were at. Right. See, that's something that I always remember when I think about Terry. And because this was something that Terry was always talking about, because Terry would always use very wide lenses because, of course, he wanted like deep depth of field. And that mm -hmm. was a specific choice because he, he wanted talking about the projection and the, you know, the image on the white screen. He wanted it to feel like a window into a space that you were looking into. Right. So like you're forgetting the flatness of it all. You're like looking deep into it and you can your eye can roam around and look around. His wide angle lens was his 3D. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But no, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, you know, again, this is why I, you know, Bersana is thought of as, as a very visual filmmaker, and he does have some iconic images. But really, when you get down to it, so many of his films, like the images themselves, aren't inherently striking. I mean, they are in terms of the actors' faces. He he chose incredibly well the actors' faces. He had, he has some quotes on faces here. I'll, go, I'll get to you in a second. But I remember thinking him and Bergman were the ones that did the most work at this time on faces and thought faces are the most visually striking thing you can shoot. Right, and of course, like Bergman was a big fan of Brisson. I think I think it's Bergman who has like the quote. He's like you know Dostoevsky. Like Russia has Dostoevsky, Germany has Mozart, and France has Brisson. Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, Tarkovsky also has some very highfalutin quote about because Tarkovsky was also a big uh, Brisson fan too, right. naturally. Do you want me to just keep going through the quotes? Yes, please. Uh, to set up a film is to bind persons to each other and to objects by looks. I guess that's in regards to perspective. Like, since so much of the film was... Like, I was just re-watching the opening of Pickpocket. You know, the whole opening where he's, like, trying to pick this woman's purse. So much of it's, mm -hmm. like, on the guy's face. And then, mm -hmm. you know, he'll, like, look down at the purse for a second. And then he'll cut down to the to the purse itself to, like, try to put you in that, like, in that perspective. But actually, you know, what comes to mind is another... It might have even been a footnote in the book that he says. He's talking about how there was one day he was, like, walking down the street... And he like looked at a man. He saw a man, and the man in front of him was looking past Brisson, and his smile, and like his face changed and lit up and smiled. And he found it so arresting and interesting. Um, and then he turned around and realized that he was smiling at a woman with a baby in a carriage. So uh, you know, mm. his, this man's partner and his child. And he said there was something about that, the connect, like the like you know his, his Brisson's perspective mimicking an edit, right? And he said there's something about the the like showing the effect before showing the cause, like the like if it had been if I had he said if I had known what he was smiling at at the moment that I see him smile, the the moment becomes significantly less interesting. There's something about like seeing his reaction, taking that in, being arrested by the man's smile, wondering what it is he's looking at before finally seeing the cause of that smile. Well, you you know me. My, one of my big uh, editorial things I'm always obsessed with is uh, everyone. I, I every all movie viewers look towards eyes first, mm -hmm. and a lot of times people look towards eyes because they want to know where eyeline's going to look at what they're looking at. To your point, but like he has, I didn't write it down, but he has this really interesting observation where he talked about um, people will stare into each other's eyes, but they're not staring that. When they stare into each other's eyes, they still don't know the eye color. They're still trying to do approximate a person. Right. Well, yeah, because it's he. We're saying because we're not really looking at the person's eyes. 
we're looking right. like our eyes we're like because like, if we're looking at their eyes as we could tell everybody's eye color you know without thinking about it but there's something we're actually looking into them we're looking past them we're trying to we're taking in a whole person just by like staring at their you know their eyes are just the window to the soul you know that whole thing well there's something so mammalian about that so like in uh, like from an evolutionary standpoint of just like when we look at something we're looking at what they're looking at so we can you know ward off predators or shit like that or what or whatever's on the horizon like too right um we already did this one radical radically suppress intentions in your models uh your imagination will aim less at events than at feelings while wanting these the latter to be as documentary as possible hmm i like the idea of feelings as opposed to events you know because we uh, there's per the theater point per the, the literature point there's a i always used to define a uh, film as a feeling or, or, or an emotional medium versus a storytelling medium sometimes then when it's a storytelling meaning gets reduced to just tell me what happens next just tell me what incident ha- one incident happens after an incident happens after an incident right and that gets in the way sometimes of why you're doing this was you want the film to be an emotional medium right i think uh... I describe that always in like the, the difference between objective cinema and subjective cinema. Mm. And I mean, I, and I think it's a taste thing. I mean, I just, I, I, I tend to prefer uh, and get more emotional by subjective cinema. And uh, I know Brisson's going towards that, like the feeling subjective cinema being like, you know, you're in a person's perspective and it's the emotions and the, like it's the ideas that drive the story forward rather than external events that move the plot forward. Right. Mm-hmm. And Again, I look. I, I love. I love all different types of movies. I love it when like something is plot heavy and dense and interesting in that way. But I also find. But I, I think I tend to find things more emotionally like poignant when it is the person's internal. If, if you can get at a character's internal existence, and yeah. that's what's driving the narrative forward, that's when film starts to vibrate in a way and becomes yeah. more like. I don't know, it, it starts to elevate in a way that like is beyond just entertainment and like sort of touching something you know human about us all. I think the degree of it also is uh, you need the context of why you're going to get into the subjectivity of a character too. So maybe there's, like you said, it's a taste thing. How much do you need to, how much architecture do you need to, to get to the subjective part or to the internal part? Mm-hmm. Um, let people feel the soul and the heart there, but let it be made like a work of hands. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I've I've been obsessed lately with the idea, especially stuff I'm working on with on my own project. Of I, I want stuff to feel handmade. Oh, I see. Oh, so that's why I wrote it down. So it's I mean, you talk about like organic, like it has a feeling of being like like I don't know. Um, I, I just I, you know I just the other day went uh, to the Met. It's been a long time since I've been to the Met, and so and there's a whole hallway where they have a bunch of Rodin statues and things that he was working on, and there is something mm-hmm. about that like that is like you know all of the thing I love so much about Rodin's models and and and, and uh, works that he does is is the t- the tactile feeling of everything. You know, you're seeing his fingerprints and they're like shaping the the forms and. So you see the work. I'm not sure if that's what Rasana is talking about or not there, but. Well, I think it goes to the point you were saying earlier about this doesn't have to be impressive. Like it needs to be functional. Right. Yes. Okay. Uh, Let it be the feelings that bring the events, not the other way around to the point earlier we were talking about with the feelings. Um, Someone who can work with the minimum can work with the most. One who can work with the most cannot inevitably with the minimum. You know, that gets at, I mean, th- that of course, it just goes that like minimalist cinema is, is 
or minimalist art in general is tends to be it's deceptively simple of course right like you, like that's and that is what you're like i feel like a lot of artists are going t- towards regardless of what medium they work in they're doing something that is as simple as possible it's just like poetry like the whole thing with poetry like poetry is supposed to be an you know economy of words like the fewest words needed to get out of meeting get into an idea the thing that i always uh m- m- one of my favorite quotes was from the poet reina maria rilke and i, I the, the, the story i always remember is that he was showing some of this is early on in his career he was showing some of his poetry to his i think it was his fiance at the time and she was like you know this is all very impressive but i don't i, I i'm sorry i just don't understand it you know i'm 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 not smart enough to understand this is essentially what she was saying okay and he said no 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 you don't understand like it's it's not that you're not smart enough to get it it's that i'm not good enough yet when i'm a better poet when i'm the best poet i can be a child will be able to understand it that's what I'm working Ooh. towards is to create meaning that is so simple that it, that it's universal. I love that, man. That's great. Yeah. So that, that's something that that's what I think of when I think of these like minimalist sort of things is that there's, they're, 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 when you watch a master do something so precise like that, the meaning it's, it tears away all artifice and all that's left is your mind to wander through what the meaning and the ideas are. And that's, I don't know. And I, and, you know, it's, 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 it's rare, but I think that that's when, when you can get something that you get something really special in film. Yeah. I, I, I also like the idea that, that, um, uh, uh, even a maximalist can have be very precise on his, on his, um, it's possible, even though they're doing a lot, a maximalist can be very precise and just a minimalist that's risen the, the floor up, you know? Right. We kind of already went over this one. The soundtrack is invented silence. Mm-hmm. Uh, on lighting, he says, I love this one. Things made more visible, not by more light, but by the fresh angle at which I regard them. Mm. Not prettifying every shot, but just what you focus on, the detail you focus on. I like that. Right. Well, again, that's, that's, you know, Brisson started out as a, he started out as a painter first. And then. I didn't know that, but that makes so much sense. Yeah. Well, he, he started painting right out of college, I think it was. And then became a photographer. Like he didn't come to filmmaking until late. I think his first film he didn't make until he was forty or so. Well, they always talk about how he came so fully formed, even though he's clearly writing this list of how to figure out what he thinks. Oh, that's interesting. I actually don't think he was because he made you know, di- maybe not fully formed, but confident in what he wanted to do. Right. He had a comp- confidence in it because like Diary of, Con- Diary of a Country Priest was like his third or fourth film. Like I've never seen anything before that. So and I've heard that they're like a varying quality. But anyway, he does. Yeah, he comes from a background of painting, and I think that he, so he's very aware of like what makes an artist an artist or a successful artist is unique perspective, right? So everything is all about it's 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 all like what makes you an artist is your ability to try to to see something in a way that's unique or different, and and, yeah. and share that perspective, and that that's why you know, and that's what he's going for in all this is like, say, Oh, I have to, I make, have to make sure I have my meaning in hand, my perspective in hand. So that's the only thing that's going to make this film that I'm creating a, a singular work. Right. I assume that's what he's getting at. I don't know if I wrote it down, but he does have a few quotes at certain points where he says that I need to see, I think I did write one, see the world as I see it or something like that. Runic Malley of noise, uh, noise of a door opening and shutting noise of footsteps, etc., for the sake of rhythm. Uh, Hmm. recognize the unorganized noises. What you think you hear is not what you hear. Um, oh, here it is. Be the first to see what you see as you see it. 
be the first to see what you see as you see as you see it. I mean, is that the same thing? Is that, is that the like the artist? I guess I, that just goes back to the artist's perspective. That's what I'm saying. Your yeah. perspective. I was saying that that was the line I was thinking of earlier for the perspective. Right. I've been thinking about this one a lot lately because I heard Scorsese. I, I don't know if it's Scorsese or someone else said they define style as the mistakes that you um, uh, are stubborn enough to keep in. Mm. Is it, it defines uh, Brisson has style. All of that is not technique. All that is not technique. I know I'm, it's it's a little that's the one's a little beguiling, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> I'm not sure what he means by that. Um, well, it, it, is technique what you learned and what you're told is supposed to be the good way of making something, and style is what you through uh, the keeping the mistakes in. Right. I get you. Well, I guess yeah. Style is more is is something that is just like it's just part of you. It's not something you're working like it's not. It's it's it's, it's maybe that he is saying it. it's like it's your perspective. It's your like a person's style. Yeah. I abbreviated that quote, but I mean, you, he definitely would be someone who's substance over style. So do you think he'd be anti-style? Well, I guess it means it depends on what you mean by style. Like, I mean, I think we think today we think of style as something that's showy, you know, or, or, or has like, has flair to it. Right. But style yeah. can just mean like, uh, I mean, I'd be interested to see what the French, like what the translation is, like if it's like a, like what the French word is, because I'm assuming he wrote all this stuff in French. Because I I I would from that quote it would seem like style just means like what is like the the feeling the overall vibe of a film or a work of art is something that you put in it just as an individual without even thinking about it. It's not your technique. It's not your. It's not something you. you it's not something you can learn. Right. It's just something that you just. That's what you share as an individual. Technique in this instance being something you learned. Yeah. Right. Okay. We've gotten this earlier. When a sound can replace an image, cut the image or neutralize it, the ear goes more towards the within the eye towards the outer yeah i know i think that's uh it's of the point of like sound is more important than image sometimes and like i, I think he did i, I was really surprised the amount of work he did on his sound yeah, in, in the movies. yeah. well i will say this yeah actually yeah. there's a footnote in the book about that particular quote i think because he he mentions about how like for example like so if an eye if your eye if you see like a train like the eye takes things very literally. So you see a train, you see a train station, like, okay, that, that's a train station. But if for your ear, all you have to hear is the whistle of a locomotive and your mind fills in the gaps and builds yeah. itself a train. It builds itself a train station. You could have whole worlds created in your mind based on the sound that you hear. And that's why sound can, can provide you with layers upon layers of meaning and imagination that, that your eye, which takes things so literally, can't. The best example of that, although, is is for me is um, I keep going back to A Man Escaped. That's my favorite film of his. It's just like, yeah. and there's so much that happens in that film with sound and like repetition and whatnot. But at the very end of the film, when the main character is like he's on the rooftops of the of the prison trying to like trying to escape, there's a sound that you hear like a squeaking sound that is not immediately recognizable. But it, 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 it definitely, you definitely know it's something man-made. So you know that there's somebody nearby and he keeps hearing this and he, they don't reveal what it is until, you know, f a couple minutes later. And finally, when it's revealed, it's, it's, a, it's a guard on a bicycle that's going around and around doing his rounds on a bicycle. But there's something about that sound that is your, your mind goes to so many places. Like, what is this sound that I'm hearing? And I know it's something ominous and I know it's something dangerous and I'm fearing for this main character, 
but because I haven't seen it yet, I don't know what it is. And so I, I, there's so many things that are built up in your head. That's kind of like when you see, realize, it's, oh, it's just the sound of a bicycle. You're like, oh, of course. And, and, and it deflates the threat a little bit in that moment, but it's, it's supposed to. But beforehand, yeah, okay. the, the preceding scenes have so much tension because you're just wondering, what is this sound? I know in our, our private conversations, you and I are both really excited about the new uh, Jonathan Glazier movie. But I mean, have you heard the premise of it, how it works? I know that he shot it with like 10 like locked off cameras or, or 10 cameras that were kind of hidden around or something like that. It's, it's called Zone of Interest. Uh, I think it's a Martin Amos uh, novel, but it's about um, uh, SS officer's family who live outside of uh, Auschwitz. And so he supposedly the way he solved the supposed making a movie without exploiting the Holocaust is they don't show it, but they hear everything that's going on in Auschwitz. Right. Yeah. Why well, I, I heard like the, the whole opening is like, is like five minutes in, in total darkness in black. And all you're doing is just hearing sounds. I mean, that, that's a sound design movie. That yeah. sounds, but per your, your imagination point. Nothing more inelegant and ineffective than an art conceived in another art's form. So I don't know if that's him trying to get away that's, from adapting it or not. Yeah, that's 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 basically saying art, like film can't just be uh, a lesser version of theater. It has to be. Right. It, it, we have to decide what film is as an art form in and of itself, and it can't just be the same thing. Here's the lenses quote: "To be constantly changing lenses in, in ph photographing is like constantly changing one's glasses." That's just kind of funny and glib, I think, too, right. on top of a specific philosophy. Um, it is the flattest and dullest parts that have in the end the most life. Hmm. I mean, I guess he, that just goes to his sort of his, his taste of like, you know, simplistic mundane images that when you take the mundane and you put it together, the, the, you know, the, the parts become, you know, the holes greater than the sum of the parts thing. And I think, yeah. you know, what I always took from his, the way he used his models or his actors, um, because outside of just like having every, like having the, 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 the people, you know, his models like perform the, the actions over and over again. So that they became kind of rote. There was also, there's like a monotony to the way everyone says their lines. That's very difficult for someone who hasn't been watching Brisson's films to like, kind of like get into like, especially when you get to something like L'Argent, where like every, like all the like everything is like very stilted and hard to like it's almost like wait no one talks like this how do you, how do you? but there, but there's something about um the monotony the monotony of the way they speak their lines and the uh, what's the word like the rigidness of their faces or something or or like or the inexpressiveness of their faces that as a viewer when it's really working for me and it doesn't always work for me but when it does really work for me it makes me lean forward and it makes me like look at things. And so when I see the smallest hint of a smile or I see like the, you know, someone's mouth start to curl down into a frown or something like that, it becomes, like it speaks volumes. It's like it, they might as well be screaming or something, you know? And I, there's something about, to, to me, that's what I feel like he was trying to get at with like, like don't perform anything. Uh, it's up to the audience to, to put meaning on what they see in your face. Well, Okay, I want to point out one of the reasons I saw Lagent for the first time last night, and the re one of the main reasons I liked it. I don't know if I've, I've given you this theory before. One of the things um, I think sometimes when we talk about, you know, when you, you, 
European cinema started coming to America prominently in uh, with the new wave or in the fifties and the sixties. And, you know, the boomers started really getting into European film there, especially when they tried to go back earlier generations. When I, I, a th issue I always had watching this and it took me years to articulate it to myself and realize it and realize it was a legit thing is sometimes we don't acknowledge how sophisticated sound technology has gotten and sound editing technology has gotten, especially in Italy where it was so much post dubbing and almost all the post of the but dialogue and everything. And so there have been times with Fellini movies, I've had trouble really loving a Fellini film just because it just sounds tinny. And mm. one of the things that Largent, I thought, man, if, if her song survived a little while longer and got to like a Dolby point or something like that, I was just like, I would really want to see what he would do with that. Yeah, when you start to get into like being able to change perspective on where a sound is coming from, I wonder if he'd play with that or, or what his feelings would be. Because, yeah, I mean, Largent, that's the whole thing of it. It's all... Like, Largent felt like a modern soundtrack to me. Right. That's one that I, I was, I was, I could get into it a lot more. Well, it's all rhythmic closing of doors, footsteps, yep. sound of money. Like everything is all, cause, yeah, because that's one of the few films. I mean, you know, that film has no music in it except for like the piano piece that's played, like the Bach piece that's played at the end. And that's played by somebody on screen. You know, I actually, I wonder, I've never really looked into the connection between like the Dogma 95 group and Rassan and what they feel about him. I thought about it, but I, I don't know the connection. Mostly just because of like most, like reading this book is so dogmatic mm -hmm. and just like this, and to be, it's how he wants to make his movies and he's talking to himself, but, um, and then Dogma 95 was one that was a little prescriptive, you know, and wanted other filmmakers to make movies exactly under this dogma. So Right. Well, well they it just because like they had the whole thing of like, you know, uh, the, th the same thing with music that Brisson has. But even then, they, they like, uh, th Brisson's very rigid about his rules. And I feel like Dogma 95, they made the rules and then immediately broke all of them. Um, That's true. And, That's and then, true. of course, Von Trier, like, 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 I don't know, I don't know many of the, the filmmakers outside of Von Trier. And then he, of course, like, like cast off the dogma, like not too long after they created it. Um, yeah. It doesn't follow it at all anymore. All right. Uh, this one is a very poetic one, but I'm not sure what it means to translate the invincible wind by the water. It sculpts in passing. I just like the poetry of that one. Yeah. yeah um, cinemagraphic films, which he is a very specific definition of cinema in the title, the title cinematographer cinemagraphic films made of inner moments, which are seen. To your point of uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, subjective, finding ways of making this stuff subjective. Right. Do not. Oh, I love this one, but I like. I just never. I knew that he did this, and I just didn't realize. I didn't realize it. I do not use the same models in two films. Yeah, and that I think is very interesting. There. Well, so I thought a lot about this. Um, like, how do you use actors? And like, uh, and one way is, of course, like you know, his belief was that if you like. If a person, like he, he talks about in the book at one point in time, there's like a line about going to see a movie with a famous, with a star, like a movie star. And he's like, there's no mystery left from that person's face. Like they've been used too much. We know everything there is to know about their eyes and their face. And they've, they've you know, it's been wrung, they've been wrung dry, basically. I did enjoy how much he railed against the star system. Yeah. And I think that that's very interesting. Now, I will say I'm also somebody who appreciates directors who use who know how to use a uh, person's star power to their advantage. And like, and uh, you know, that's, I think that's the best way. If you're going to use a movie star, 
it's very hard for me to see a movie star disappear into a role. Whereas if you take a movie star and just let them be that movie star or you like uh, the example I'm just going to right now is how Paul Verhoeven used like Schwarzenegger in Total Recall. You know, like you, they was like, okay, I am using him for who he is. And that's going to be part of like the, 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 the trick I'm pulling off. Um, or I don't know, like, or Tom Cruise, like Tom Cruise is no longer. I was thinking Tom Cruise and Magnolia, like just like you, you want, you give them immediate presence, even in a, in a, in a character role. Yeah. If you're going to do that. Tom Cruise and Magnolia or Tom Cruise and Eyes Wide Shut's a great example. Like, 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 uh, do we know what the hell was his and Nicole Kidman's character's names? We don't know. Like we just like, like Kubrick was using them as a, as a famous couple, like using their star bar. Um, so like Tom Cruise isn't playing characters anymore. He's just playing Tom Cruise. And Kubrick was always really best at using movie stars by the end of his career too. Yeah. But I will say I, I, there's a lot to be said for what Brisson's talking about. I think that, I mean, he, like, if you think about, like, I think the, I forget the actor's name, but the actor that he used in, um, diary, diary of a country priest has one of the greatest faces in all of cinema. Like I put it up there with like Falconetti in terms of like, like his expression and, and like, and like, like such a sorrowful, mournful face. And part of the power of that is I've never seen that actor. I know he was in other films, so I've never seen that actor in anything else. And Brisson really like, I mean, so much of that movie is just all that guy's faced. I can't imagine, I would think that if, if I were him and I, and I was like thinking about trying to use that same actor in a different film, like I don't know how to shoot this face anymore. Like I've shot it from every different way I can. I've used, I've used it up. So it makes sense why he would like, uh, you know, want to use someone who had never been photographed before. I, I mean, it seems like a very pure way of looking at it and i mean and i think a lot of star system we have to acknowledge is a financial thing too well that's the other thing i mean that's part of my brain while reading through this book again was like okay brisson this is all well and good but like <laughs> if you try to do this now you'll never you like you might get it unless you're self-funded how are you ever gonna get this in these movies made maybe that's what i was doing i was trying to with the money-making point was they seemed like such like i, I was like I, when i was looking through his filmography they always talk about how short his filmography was but it's like you still got to make a movie every three years you're still getting financed good for you man i hope but i think that's that, that's why he took it because it wasn't just his meticulous nature when it comes to filmmaking it was he had a hell of a time trying to get these things financed and i can't uh, imagine I these movies cost that much there wasn't that much to them so I, I think he was just it was just difficult to have somebody invest any money in these uh, we talked about this one already. Not beautiful photography, not beautiful images, but necessary images in photography. Right. Um, this one was funny to me because uh, he does move his camera. Uh, obvious traveling or panning shots do not correspond to the movements of the eye. This is to separate the eye from the body. One should not use the camera as if it were a broom. Right. Yeah. You know, I... I, I mean, I feel like the, the movement... broom was the, like, it's just... Uh, okay. Right. Like, yeah. Like, it, when you put it that way, I get like, I know what you want, don't want to do, buddy, but okay. Right. I think he just, I, I guess he's just saying like, don't, you know, you're not sweeping the viewer around the stage or whatever. <laughs> and, and his point to keeping the eye in the body, like that's, yeah, I, I get it. That makes sense too. Right. Although, I mean, but of course, I mean, I, I, I disagree with that. I, I, I've been watching a lot of Scorsese films recently and like, just the way he uses movement is like, I'm like, well, I, I can't yeah. deny that this is intoxicating. So yeah. good, good point. Bring up Scorsese. Uh, Schrader in the, uh, does this really long intro on the pickpocket. Cause obviously, you know, he, he calls it like the most creative, uh, I forget what his phrase is, but a big part of his movie, but he talks about a lot of 
screenwriting 101 that um in particular in pickpocket person breaks and a lot of it's like doubling and tripling information and you know scores or uh, schrader obviously took the uh the diary thing because diaries come up a lot with Brisson and he writes like his characters always writing, but sometimes he would literally and pickpocket Schrader points out, uh, will write a line. The narration will say the right lines writing. And then he'll literally do the thing he's just writing about. I went into the police station or something like that. Uh, so it's funny to find on page one Oh three, create expectations to fulfill them. It's like, huh. <laughs> so that's like a Robert McKeeism there. That's really funny. Yeah, you know, you're right. I, I, I there is a lot of like, it is weird. I, I, I feel like the principles that he applies to to image and sound don't, yeah, don't always apply to his narration because like his narration is often like just telling you what you're seeing on screen. Mm-hmm. And so, and this is why I do think a movie like Largent, which doesn't have narr- narration, is maybe a. Gosh, I don't want because you know what's funny. I, I struggle with Largent so much. Um, it's a hard. I, I love the ending of it, and that's the movie. Like, the ending of it is what like makes me think about that movie. But like while I was watching it, I was like, I, this is. I'm having a hard time getting into this because it is so austere and it's so mm-hmm. aesthetic. But because it doesn't have narration, it's and and it is all about the rhythm of sounds and whatnot. It kind of gets closer to the principles that he's espousing in this book. Whereas, yeah, like the narration of there's a lot of narration in, in some of my favorite of his films that is completely unnecessary. And I'm kind of wondering why does he include some of it? You know, a man escaped yeah. has that all over the place. He's, he's just narrating exactly what he's doing. I mean, Huber could sometimes do that too. Um, a virtuoso makes us hear the music, not as is written, but as he feels it. Mm-hmm. Uh, color gives force to your images. I mean, how many, he, he what three features were in color? I don't know. I, I mean, Largent, Lancelot. I think the Joan of Arc one was in color too, right? Uh, you're, name, you're naming two of the three I, have, I haven't seen. So yeah, he, um, he switched to color late. It was all. Of, it wasn't until like the seventies, I think, that he switched to color. So financial considerations. Yeah. Uh, your fumed, your film's beauty will not be in the images. Postcardism. That was the reason I wrote this down. He used the phrase postcardism, but in the ineffable that they dis, they will disengage. Hmm. Oh, here we go. The public does not know what it wants. Impose on it your decisions, your delights. To be fair, I really like the your delights just because, you know, if, if it, when you're trying to figure out what makes good movies and nobody knows anything, to use William Goldman phrase, I've, I've come up with and Dan Harmon has this thing where he talks about what creates joy. So just delights like that makes sense. Like, don't it seems like a lot of artists creative of like, don't screw up, don't do anything that people are going to like, or people are going to hate. And it just seems like a terrible place for creation. Whereas if you're like, I need to duplicate my joys and my delights, it seems like a better place to come from. I think. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's, I, I think that's a better way to say it the way you're saying it, which is not the I, arrogance that you were, you were mentioning earlier. Yeah. There's a bit of an arrogance the way Brisson says it, where I think it is more like, yeah, you can't, you, you're, you can't create art by trying to think about what, like by trying to think about giving somebody what they want, right? That, that's that's commercialism. That's the only thing that comes from yeah. it. Like, like there's a need, I'm going to fulfill it. Art can only come from inside, from interior and, and inside, like motivation. So, well, to say nothing of how futile it is to try to predict uh, audiences wants to, right? So. We were 
were talking about, you mentioned Falconetti earlier. For one of truth, the public gets hooked on the false. Falconetti's way of casting her eyes to heaven in Dreyer's film used to draw tears. Is he shitting on Dreyer? Read that again. Read the quote again. That, for, one of for one of truth, the public gets hooked on the false. Falconetti's way of casting her eyes to heaven in Dreyer's film used to draw tears. Or is he saying like this is a, she has a natural way of doing this that is draws tears? I don't know. That's a good question because I would if if there was any filmmaker that I would thought that Brisson would respect would be Dreyer. And Dreyer is also one of the three. Him and Ozu are in Schrader's book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, what was what was his um, Joan of Arc? The do you know much of the genesis of his Joan of Arc? I don't, and I've actually never seen it either. So. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess one would think that if he's making his own version of Joan of Arc, he must not care for that one, which is insane. I don't, like, I don't know right. how you can watch yeah. Carl Dreyer's Joan of Arc movie and be like, meh, doesn't do it for me. <laughs> or I can do better. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's definitely a performance she's giving, but I, but that's a performance that is so like that comes from somewhere deep inside of her. But I don't know how you can look at that and think it's false. And that, I mean, there's like that. Like, I, I remember when I saw that movie, I was like, wow, you can make a movie almost all completely out of close ups, too. Yeah. And it's in, I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, yeah. What an incredible work. That was it. Um, I, and then I come back to the build your film on wide, on silence and stillness. Um, that I, I, I almost got to the end of the book and was like, did Karen not, it was, did he make that up from somewhere else? And it was on the, one of the last pages. But <laughs> the only thing I, I, I kind of want to talk about less was, uh, I don't know anything about him, but Ozu worked with the same editor for almost his entire career. Raymond uh, Raymond Lamy, L-A-M-Y. Wait, you said Ozu worked with the same? Uh, or, no, not sorry, no, Ozu. Brisson. Oh, Brisson with, with the same editor. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, we switched uh, subjects in the podcast late. Oh, sorry, brain fart. That's okay. It was funny. I I um I actually didn't look up what who his editor was. Um, I mean that makes sense. I mean all of his films are put together in a similar kind of way, and if and if you, I'm sure it's a rarefied company to find somebody who could you know, speak the, the same language that, that Brisson was speaking in film. And so if you find that, it makes sense that he would use the same collaborator. I think he didn't do Lancelot and he didn't do L'Argent, but it was mostly, he was a Fr uh, apparently a French industry guy. That is, that's all I saw about him. Oh, interesting. Do you know, if, did Brisson use the same, the same DP over and over again, or is that get switched up? There's a, I don't remember which. There's a streak where he did for a few films in a row. He'd use the same DP. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always very interested in filmmakers whenever they do switch up their creative teams because I, obviously you and I know that like you when you build a certain style, especially if you have a very specific style, you build that in part with your team. Like it's no, it's not just a singular voice. Mm -hmm. And actually, just to speak about it for a second, like Nolan is the one I've been thinking about recently because I know that you know he obviously switched up his editor on Tenet when he started working with Jennifer Lame. And you can mm -hmm. see the style of Nolan's movies from Tenet and Oppenheimer being very different to my mind. And he, switch, he switches composers uh, and, uh, he had, and he had to switch DPs after, um, I guess, Dark, the last Dark Knight movie. Oh, yeah. I forgot when he switched and when he moved over. But uh, yeah, but you can see, anyway, you see like a changeover in all of his collaborators. And there's a very markedly like different style to those movies than the previous ones. And I love them both. I just think yeah. that like, like Tenet and uh, like, I can speak to the editing of it. Tenet and Oppenheimer are much more based in collage 
and they're a little bit raw, more raw, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. in how they're put together than I think his previous films were. And uh, so anyway, this all just to say, like, I'm like, I do think it's very fascinating when you, when you when you have someone who has a singular voice, when they do start to switch their collaborators up, you could see how that voice changes a bit. And so I'd be interested. I don't know when Bersana, like I I I, I didn't go into thinking about Bersana is such a totemic, like such a, such a um, singular fig, figure in filmmaking. I don't think about when his like when he would be switching up his collaborators. But it'd be very interesting to chart the progression of his style. Yeah, I, I wish I wish I looked into it more because because the other thing is like you said, style is something that's the accumulation of your collaborators. But I also find it fascinating that more people don't switch up collaborators more too, especially when it seems like they have access to everyone who wants to work with them. You know. Well, I'm sure it's just like, I mean, you also need to, like, if you've worked with someone and you've had success working with that person, then there's a comfort there. There's a no, like, I, you know, there's so much, I, I'm always surprised, like when I come onto a, a new film with a new filmmaker that I've never worked with before, it, it's always, it, it's always um, so surprising to me to think about, like, oh yeah, that's right. This person is putting so much trust in me. I'm I'm putting putting together the first edit of the film while they're shooting, so they're not even seeing what I'm doing. You know, I'm just going to present this yeah. assembly to them. Like they don't know who I am. We haven't had these conversations yet. Like, well, and also so much of the work, especially at the beginning, is is re- is just reading each other and feeling like, what do you like? What do you not like? Getting used to that stuff too. Like kind of feeling each other out a little. Right. So I think once you find somebody who again, speaks the same language as you do, same filmic language as you do. It's kind of, uh, I, I would have a hard time letting that person go, you know, <laughs> like I'd be like, no, no, please stay with me. Let's, let's, you know, I want to keep this collaboration going. Um, the last thing I have is, uh, Schrader talked a lot about this where, um, I noticed this in pickpocket a lot where, um, he was talking about whenever a person leaves a room, uh, Ozu stays, on a, a, a shot of a person in a door, an empty door frame for like 11 frames longer than anybody else. And it remind I don't know if he, the reason I said Ozu a second earlier was because it reminded me of Ozu's pillow shots. Uh, uh, Ozu's what? His Ozu used to put, he called them pillow shots where they would be like an arbitrary shot in between something that was supposed to bounce off something where it was just like, it was a nothing shot that was supposed to be a breath almost. Oh, well, are you talking about in terms of like, like the coolest job effect, like where you insert something that's seemingly meaningless, or it's just this is just purely rhythmic? No. It's a purely rhythmic. It's and it's it's supposed to be a breath of rhythm too, and usually it's in between things you're paying attention to. Oh, that's interesting. I've like, I, maybe like a sigh even. Right. I you know it's it's been years since I've watched any Ozu films. I watched them a bunch in college, and I was always much more of a you know if, if there's any sort of rivalry between like. Kurosawa and Ozu. I was always on the Kurosawa side, so I've always feel like I need to go back to like revisit Ozu's filmography. And it may and it may be just because Schrader wrote a book with all of them, but it, Schrader seems to really think that um, they had a lot in common, and he he quoted some similar um, stylistic uh, uh, dogma with each other. It's things they said that sounded similar to each other, specifically on actors. I think. Yeah, I think you know it's it's funny. I always looked at them both, Kurosawa and Ozu. Uh, I remember I, I took a class in college that was all about post-World War II Japanese cinema and Kurosawa and Ozu being the two like main figures of that with, uh, is it Mitsuguchi is the other one? Is I remember you being a, you, you or 
you and AJ were the Mizuguchi um, oh, fans well, in the office. I think Ugetsu is a, just a towering masterpiece. So yeah, I love his work. But when it comes to Ozu and Kurosawa, like it was like Kurosawa had more Western elements to his his filmmaking, and then Ozu was like very very much an Eastern. Like, like that, that his filmmaking was seemed to be very purely like of a Japanese sort of style, which has also made it, you know, me being a Westerner myself, made it a little bit more difficult to like to enter into. But I think that's why they're often like, even though they share a lot of similar aesthetics, like they are sometimes pitted against each other because of like the, the divides that they represent. I mean, I, I, I say this, I, I really haven't seen much Ozu either. Um, like, I mean, you, you taught a class on Brisson, so I don't know if you wanted to... Uh... You had a some final thoughts. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. It's um, let's see. What are my final? How thoughts? how often do you watch Brisson? Let, 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 let's get to this. How often, like, I mean, your your viewing habits, like you're working, you got a family, so your viewing habits may not be as your college level, but like, well, do you, how often do you go back to it? I don't go back to it very often. I will say, so like I said, I have seen A Man Escaped probably four times or so. Like that's the one I've watched the most. I okay. I find that movie to almost be like an action movie in the Personian style. There's still a lot of his work that I haven't seen. I haven't seen Lancelot uh, of the Lake. I haven't seen his Joan of Arc movie. And it's been years since I've watched ba- uh, you know Balthazar. That one didn't really do that much for me. So you have to be in a real state, like a real, like, like calm, like meditative state almost to want to watch his, his movies with very, like they do work best in the cinema, like without any distractions and whatnot. So you can really like let them wash over you. And then I do like, I think they also work best if you're going to like have a discussion about them afterwards, you know, and like sit down and like, like talk about them. Okay. But again, I think that I have to just go back to my feeling of like, Brisson again, is not my, he's not my favorite filmmaker. And I don't know if he didn't crack my top 10, I'm just in awe of, I love thinking and discussing, thinking about and discussing artists in filmmaking who are working on their art and and like have a very unique perspective and are like moving towards something. So this goes all the way back to our time working with Terry, you know, Sometimes people, sometimes when people think about directors, they're always like, oh, okay, the person's going to do their, they're going to do their um, horror movie next, or they're going to do their sci-fi movie next, or they're going to, like, they're going to change up the genres. And then there's certain filmmakers who don't do genre. They just, they're, they're, they're almost remaking the same movie over and over again, but they're trying to get towards something. Okay. And like Terry's a good example of that. Like Terry uses the same sort of a lot. He uses a lot of things that are carried over from one film to the next. But I feel like he's like, he is trying to work towards something. What that is, I'm not sure. And, you know, your mileage may vary in terms of like how far you'll go with mm. him or not. And maybe he's not sure too. He's, it's a sense of discovery too. Yeah. And so I always liken it to someone like Jackson Pollock. It's like, you wouldn't ask, ask Jackson Pollock to like, like, like Pollock, why are you still doing the splatter paint? Do something else, you know? <laughs> um, what is it with the splatter? Yeah, yeah. Like, why do I keep doing this thing? I've seen it before. You know, he's going to keep doing that because, like, those type of artists, like a lot of installation artists or modern artists, get uh, obsessed with something, uh, obsessed with the material, or obsessed obsessed with a very specific sort of style. Or like, I remember there was one artist who got obsessed with polka dots, and so all of her work was like polka dot based. And so they're gonna like they're gonna examine this and like really like try to dive down to that specific thing, and that can happen in filmmaking too. And I find it very interesting. And so, so Brisson for me is more of a, I love him 
more as like uh, it's more of an intellectual exercise for me to like respect him as someone who is defining a style and trying to figure out what his place in filmmaking is and how do you move the art of filmmaking forward and we just don't have especially in american cinema we don't have that many uh artists who are like who are who are able to do that to be honest like they just run out of funding you know before they're able to build a body of work i find it the contradiction because this book is really inspiring to read the purity of it's really nice um the idealism of it is really nice but i I was drawn a lot to his make movies emotional arguments and I had trouble getting through these movies the last two days. And uh, I brought, I want to bring it up to friends. Um, it's, it's, I don't know. I, your, your point about needing to go to the cinema again, needing to be in the right preparatory space to watch it. Uh, that makes sense to me. I just, like, I, I wonder what Brisson's reputation is anymore, even too. Well, cause it's, cause it seems like, like how many, um, big awards he won in the late fifties. So like he was the height that was like kind of the precursor going into the new French new wave. And he had some overlaps in there too. Well, I think this thing that, I mean, Brisson is so, because he's, he is so influential to so many of the filmmakers that I, I do think most people who are, you know, most cinephiles are aware of, even if they're not aware of Brisson. It's like the next, he was the, like the forefather to those people like Tarkovsky to the French New Wave folks, to people like Paul Schrader, you know, Scorsese obviously loves him, even if you don't see it reflected in his style. I heard Christopher Nolan even said he watched some, uh, A Man Escaped, I think specifically for Dunkirk. I mean, I think that that all makes sense. So I think you, you know, it's, he's not there to be emulated. I don't think anyone's ever going to try to emulate Brisson style he's more there to like he has a philosophy of filmmaking and I think what he works best as is like to 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 examine his philosophy on filmmaking and to choose what works best and rings true for you right to find those little elements you're like oh that you know like for me as I was talking about it I love his how he approaches like thinking about sound and image and how they work together so while I may not agree with him in terms of you know using actors as models I do think that his approach to editing and how you piece together a film and how you think about that is very useful and rings true for me. So I wonder, I think that might be true for a lot of filmmakers that he influenced. The the, the thing about this book is it's so cogently because it's so simple and for his style, very simple and minimal, uh, but it's so cogent in terms of consistency. And so you can want, you can read this and be like, when you're trying to figure out your own, what you want to do as a filmmaker, you could look at this and be like, that is that makes sense. I will do a form of, or I will do a form of that, and then you can look at some of these. And goes, buddy, I'm not going that far. Right. You can do that a lot too with it, some of these. Um, yeah, I, I mean, maybe I, I. I was also thinking of that quote about the Velvet Underground when Velvet Underground came out. Not a lot of people listened to them, but everyone that did listen to them started a band. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. I think about that a lot because that is one of those things, and that's a good example. Like the Velvet Underground, is, like feels almost like when you listen to it, you're there's a simplicity to their music that is very hard to achieve. And everyone thought that they could, could achieve it. You know, the Pixies are the same way. I think the Pixies are like the Velvet Underground of like the late 80s, early 90s. I heard that quote from a Pixies essay, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, right, that's why I first read that. Yeah, where you hear it, and you're like, oh. They, and, but there is something because about it that is so, because that, that sort of music is so raw and elemental and deceptively simplistic it, 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 there's something about it that just stirs up the feeling of like, oh, I want to make this. I want to do this thing. I want to reach people. I want to like, like get at the heart because it's like really getting at something that's so 
fundamental to, fundamental in all of us. I don't know. It's funny to think about how like the thing the similarities between the Velvet Underground and Brisson, but like it is there is <laughs> something about like their styles that you're like, ah, yes, I want to do this. Well, that's what gets me back to the handmade aspect, that the handmade quote. That's what I always like. A handmade movie gives you the inspiration of I want to make my own handmade movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can be made. This movie can be made, even if they can't do it exactly the same way. But I mean, this book, like you said, is such a good process. Shows his way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, Keith Ray's, thank you for doing this podcast. <laughs> oh my goodness, it was my absolute pleasure. I would always love to. I mean, how often do I get the chance to talk about Brisson? Um, this is a uh, this is this is this has been wonderful. Let's hope more people want to listen to us talk about Brisson. <laughs> Agree. Um, uh, not to jinx anything, but good luck in the next few months. All things, yeah, uh, yeah. Anybody? Uh, so actually, you know, as we're recording this today, I think Past Lives just came out on. I think it's available on VOD now. Okay. Um, yeah, it's still it's like it's still like slowly rolling out across the world. Like I think it just came out in the UK or something like that, but it has finished its theatrical run in the US, but now it's available on VOD. So anybody who's listening, go out and rent it and watch it and support it. I think it's a great film, a film that I, I I'm very I was very very happy to work on, and I nice. One of my I'm really proud of you, man. It's one of my top movies of the year. Ah, oh, awesome. Glad to hear that. Thank you. Thank you.